Welcome to the National Writers Series podcast. On May 3rd, Jeanette Walls graced the City Opera House stage in Traverse City to talk about her new hit novel, Hang the Moon. Susan Odgers was the guest host and has been friends with Jeanette for years. She was thrilled to join her on stage that evening. Well, Jeanette, it's finally here. <laughs> Our reunion on stage. And as a teacher, I have my notes because I have a lot to talk to you about tonight. But welcome back to Michigan. Thank you. Thank and Traverse you. City in particular. Thank you. And as president of Michigan Writers, all the writers, we love you. Thank, Thank you for you. Thank coming you. on this tour. Thank you all. And no, coming you. to Traverse Thank City. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I mean, um, I've had a blast so far. It's, a, it's an amazing town, a, a great community, just lovely feeling, a lot of at the school we talked today, got a lot of great questions. So you don't need my permission, but ask anything. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you heard that. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we have lots of streaming re uh, viewers. You heard that. Uh -huh. So our folks over at Cordia, they have a full room screen and they're all oh, watching. Great. So hello yeah, to Cordia. Yeah. Hi, Cordia. <laughs> and we have um, people from coast to coast. I mean, just great. all kinds of folks that are great. watching you. So it's the National Writers Series, so I want to start with writing. Uh -huh. And you told me a story that the audience has to hear about the role of someone in an audience that helped oh. you write. Oh, okay. Hang okay. the moon. Okay. Well, this is uh, okay. I'm a little long-winded, so that's why they have Susan here. She has permission <laughs> to cut me off because I I go on a bit. But all my life, I wanted to be a journalist, I'm a, 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 a storyteller, a, a truth teller, a fact finder. And um, you know, I was a, I was that bonehead you see on television, sticking my microphone into celebrities' faces, asking them who designed their outfits, and that was kind of where my career in journalism was. Um, and it was my husband who basically hogtied me to the desk and said, "You have to tell your story." So I, so I wrote my memoir. The Glass Castle. And I thought I was gonna get fired from my job. I go back sticking my microphone in celebrity spaces. And a um a very famous person who I will not name asked me to turn off the mic and said, um, I want to thank you for telling your story. My father's also an alcoholic, and your story really helped me. Um, and I thought, dang it, <laughs> I can't write anything snarky about that person anymore. So I, you know. <laughs> I thought I'd get fired from my job, but I didn't get fired, I got defamed. So I have a problem, that is, is I, I'm really nosy. I love hearing people's stories and I didn't know what else I could do. So my husband and I, we moved from New York City to Central Virginia and um, uh, took my mom with me. Not She didn't live, never lived with me because I'm not a saint, we put her out back. But, um, <laughs> but, but readers kept saying that, readers are smarter than me and that's why I invite a lot of questions. But they kept saying, I understand your dad, I understand alcoholism, but I don't understand your mom. So my next book was about mom. I didn't invite her to live with us for the purpose of exploiting her, but as long as she's there, what the heck? So, so, um, so I wrote her story, and then that was, and I called it fiction because it was all for my mom. I have no idea how much of it is true. And then the next, the next novel I wrote was also cobbled together from things I'd heard and knew. And, and, and people are saying, you should write fiction, you should write fiction. I'm like, oh, no, 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 I am a, re a reporter, I'm a researcher, I'm a fact finder. I do not make things up. I have no imagination. And it was almost like a mantra for me. I don't make things up. And I was at an event, much like this one, and a gentleman in the front row about where you're sitting, at, at, during the Q&A session, she said, ma'am, forgive me, but I think you have a fabulous imagination. You're afraid of your own creativity. I was like, Y'all get it. I'm like, oh, I think he's onto something. And I was like, 
no, no. And I put my fingers in my ear. No, no, no. But and I, I, I thought the whole, you know, the right. I'm not a serial memoir. Some memoirs keep on writing about things that happened to them. And I'm just not that interesting. The Glass Castle was about my parents. And I didn't have anything to write about. But that thing that gentleman was saying kept on haunting me. And, um, and then I was at um, a, a symposium with another writer. And somebody said, what is the best fiction writing? Or, uh, somebody in the audience asked this woman, sitting next to me, what is the best fiction writing advice anybody's ever given you? And she said, take an acting class. And I thought, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. What does that have to do with anything? And then when they turned The Glass Castle into a movie and I spent time on the set, I understood what she meant. Um, I still haven't taken a, an acting class, but, but having spent time with the actors, having spent time with these people. First time I talked to Brie Larson who played me in the movie. Um, she's kind of quiet and she's got these like laser eyes and she just stares at you. And the beginning of the conversation, she was you know just sitting there watching me. But by the end of the conversation, she got kind of loud and cackly. I'm like, where is that coming from? And then this, you know, <laughs> you, <laughs> you guys get it. <laughs> and she starts gesturing kind of wildly. I'm like, oh, what's her problem? And then I realized, uh-oh, she's doing me. And then, <laughs> and, but the, the thing that really knocked my socks off is it was, it was Woody Harrelson when he was cast as my dad. Um, I thought like, well, he didn't look that much like my dad. He's got like, when he had hair, it was blonde and he's blue eyed and all that. Um, but we got to, we, we talked on the phone and he was asking these really smart questions about dad. He was saying, you know, uh, did he look you in the eye when he talked to you? What did he do with his hands? And I said, he crushed beer cans, not wimpy beer cans like they have now, but back when beer cans were real beer cans. And, and he said, like cool hand Luke. I said, dad was cool hand Luke. And he really loved that. And that's what these actors do is that I think they don't like to make up characters, but they like to base it, base their acting on other people. And I thought, that's what the other writer was saying, Lisa DeGeneres, who wrote um, Still Alice. And, um, and I thought, well, that is what this fiction writing business is about. It's not necessarily completely making things up, but observing. And I've come to believe it's that acting and fiction writing are both acts of empathy and getting inside people's head and not necessarily making, and I distrusted the whole idea of making things up because creativity and I guess I associate, creativity was very rampant in my family. Both of my, both of my parents, they had characters in their heads and they'd pull them all out, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not on purpose. And they were just very free flowing with the stories. And I think I associate um, making things up with lying and insanity, both of which run in my family. And, uh, and when I saw these actors getting inside other, and then when they were doing the, um, the the movie and the director would tell them to do something very often these actors would say i don't think my character would do that and the director said well what would your character do and then they would they would extemporaneously say what they thought that these characters would do including the first time i saw woody harrelson and then i'll shut up about this one question i'm sorry the, the first time the first time i saw woody harrelson in character he didn't know i was watching i was watching on this monitor it was a scene in which of uh, the brie larson character that would be me and he were having an argument because she was going to leave home and he was trying to get her to stay and i hadn't seen him in, in character and in makeup and I burst into tears. I, I I couldn't believe what I was seeing. He had the body language. He had he had the the facial muscles. Like what the hell? What is going on here? And then so they were acting out this scene, and then they went off script. And Woody Harrelson started saying Woody Harrelson started saying things that my father had said that I hadn't told him. 
And I was a mess. I was crying. I was slinging snot. I was just, I was bad. It was bad. And then he comes, he comes uh, back and he sees that I've been watching him. And he comes over and he says in my father's voice, he says, and I, like an idiot, I start apologizing. I know he wasn't my dad, but I'm sorry. And in my father's voice, he says to me, you had to do it, honey. You had to leave or we wouldn't be here. And it was one of those magical moments that life hands you. You know, my dear old crazy drunken daddy, who for all of his faults gave me some of the greatest gifts of my life, comes back and forgives me. And that, I came to realize, is the power of storytelling, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, and empathizing and getting inside somebody else's head and being able to channel them. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I told you that I was going to ask you to give your elevator pitch. Yeah, elevator. And what the, but there's more. Let me get the question. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, so I told you she has to like the, the elevator. <laughs> the elevator pitch about what each of these books are about. Okay. But we'll start with the newest, and then okay. talk about uh, newspaper research. And uh, yeah, the yeah. role of COVID. Okay. 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 The role of what? COVID. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Um, Hang the Moon. It is set 100 years ago, uh, Central Virginia, during Prohibition. It's about a young woman who adores her father and wants to be just like him and go into the family business. And the family business happens to be liquor making. So she, during the time of Prohibition, of course, that means battling with the law. It also means blockade running and shootouts and things like that. But for all of the action and plot twists, of which there are many, um, it is a story about family. It's a story about family and the roles that we all have in family. Okay. And you wrote this during COVID. Um, <laughs> I came to realize that I'm not very good at multitasking. And I was, I was touring a lot on behalf of the Glass Castle still. And as I, I deeply regret all of the suffering during COVID. But I think that self-isolating is the only way that I was really able to, to write this dang thing. Yeah, because okay. I completely, I'm such a research nerd. And I spent seven years, seven or eight years writing that thing. Yeah, and yeah. In, 17 drafts. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a fast but sloppy writer. You can probably tell from up here. Like, you know, I kind of go on a little bit. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so I just write it and write it. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. Why? And I research the bejesus out of it. I, I probably over-researched okay. So it. say something about the role in the acknowledgments. There's uh -huh. a lot about all the tools yeah, you use yeah, for research, yeah. but newspapers in particular. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is that most of us know about Prohibition through um, urban coverage. Great, you know, they got the great gangsters and they got the, the G-men and all that and the speakeasies and the flappers and all that. And and we hill folk are our great icons from, you know, the prohibition period are Snuffy Smith of Hoot and Holler, you know. And so I, I wanted to get past the stereotypes, but there weren't a whole lot of books written about rural uh, liquor makers during prohibition. Um I I I got every book I could find. There were a couple that were very valuable. Um, there was a, um, and in my research, I found out that there was a, a county in Virginia uh, that after prohibition was revealed to be the wettest county in America, Franklin County, they made more moonshine than any comparable place in, in the country. And um, so I wanted to make, see, I think if you're writing fiction, it has to be believable. I, I you know, it's, it's part of my mm -hmm. research nerd right. background, journalism background. And I, 
I, I think I think that fiction and nonfiction are actually a lot closer than I realized. And I think that you 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 know doing the research to make it in the same way that, that Woody Harrelson was doing research. You, you look into these characters, you try to make them real, you try to make them credible, you try to make them more than just stereotypes and two-dimensional. So I wanted, to, I wanted to get inside the heads of these people. What was it like living 100 years ago? I've long been fascinated by Prohibition when I was about seven or eight years old. Uh, like many of the people in this room, I read anything with words on it. And on this particular day, that something was a, um, it was a vase on the kitchen table, which was actually a former whiskey bottle that my mom had stuck flowers in. And um, I turned it around and it said, federal law forbids a reuse or sell of this bottle. I said, Ma, we got to dump the flowers. Yeah. <laughs> she said, what are you talking about? I said, we're breaking the law. You know, and she said, um, what are you talking about? So I showed her the, the little thing on the back and she said, oh, that's just a stupid law. You can ignore it. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? We're all the time breaking laws. This one's easy. Just dump the flowers. And she explained to me about prohibition. And I wanted to live during this wondrous time because with a raging alcoholic dad, I thought, you know, oh, if I could have only lived then, uh, you know, um, dad wouldn't drink. Um, we could pay the bills and all of our problems would be solved. And mom explained to me, she said, oh, it was, it was a disaster. And she explained about the law of unintended consequences. And um, I didn't believe her. I thought she's just making all this up. But I became fascinated by this period, not just because of prohibition, but also because it was such a transitional period in America where we were first, I mean, you know, electricity and cars have been around, but it was the first time the masses were getting it. And so having grown up for long periods without electricity or vehicle or, or the modern conveniences, I felt that I was kind of more qualified than most Americans to know what that felt like and to know what it feels like. Really, every time I turn on a light switch, I think, you know, it's a miracle to me. Every time I flush a toilet, thank you, God. You know, life is good. You got you got a flush toilet. You got nothing to complain about. But um, but it was such a transitional period and it was a scary period. Prohibition was a very scary period because there was so much change, not unlike today. And Prohibition, it was a... Um, it was a nativist movement on many levels where people like, the, America was just changing so much, they wanted to go back to the way it used to be. Back with, before the crazy Italians came with their wine and the crazy Irish came with their beer. And it was, you know, it was a better place. It was an effort to turn back the hands of time. And of, of course it, it didn't work. But so I was fascinated by this period, particularly what it was like for these people up in the hills. And the thing is that in that part of Virginia, uh, there's not a lot of cash crops. There, uh, there had been chestnuts, but there was this great big plague and they all got wiped out. And so whiskey making was the cash crop. Prohibition gets passed and you get these more or less law abiding people suddenly become outlaws. And it was a very, it was a time of great upheaval. So I couldn't find a whole lot of research. I, I thought I'd find books by people who were moonshining. Not a lot of them kept diaries. So I, um, <laughs> I, it was the newspapers mostly that I read. It was the newspapers and the, and the um, you know, um, it was fascinating because reading the arguments for prohibition, there were good arguments for prohibition. Oh, some of those. You know, I mean, they really genuinely believed if, if, we, if we outlaw liquor, the husbands will go home, they'll, they'll leave the saloon, they'll go home, take care of their children. Uh, law will become, uh, uh, crime will become a thing of the past. They really believed this, we can, close the jails, we won't need police forces, and we can use that money for education. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they honestly believe that that would happen. And the, the argument for liquor 
it's pretty pretty slim. It's like <laughs> people should be allowed to spend the rent money and get you know lose a few IQ points. So you know what you know. So it but it was it 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 hugely changed. Um, certainly this part of America and and also during this period in American history, you know, the, the boys had just come back from the First World War and it was just, it was scary. People from different lands talk in different countries, different languages and it was so, I wanted to, to talk about a country that was kind of coming of age and the that's the backdrop to this woman who's coming of age, the main character, Sally Kincaid, who's just sort of trying to figure out where she fits in the world. Right. Do you, for this particular book, did you get to pick the cover art and the title of the book? Uh, I picked both, yeah. I, um, I, I found the photo um, while I was, thank you, thank you. Um, I found the photo while I was researching, like I said, big research nerd. There's one character in there who was a baseball player, and I read four books on what was called dead ball uh, baseball. It was an early 20th century. Okay. Uh, and I just, I just kept on trying to get more and more information. But yeah, I just, I loved that picture because it's a woman under a car and I really love like get her done. I just like the fixing it up and it, automobiles. I think it's so hard for us to understand how, how completely transformative it was for Americans. There was one line I ran across while I was doing my research and it said 10 miles used to be a long way. And that really stuck with me because mm -hmm. it, going into town, it was an all day job. And it was especially difficult for women who really were not, you could hop astride a horse, but you really weren't supposed to. And and they it, it, hitching up the wagon was not a one person job. Mm -hmm. If you were really industrious, maybe in a small wagon, but it was the, the automobile, it just, it changed things so much. And it really changed the role of women during a time when women's roles were already changing. I believe that's why women started bobbing their hair. I never mm -hmm. came up with this, okay. but women used to wear these loop-de-doo pompadour stuff that just wouldn't open, worked in an open car. Mm -hmm. And most cars were open. So it just, it changed everything, especially for women. You know, electric cars were around then. Electric cars mm -hmm. and steam cars and mm -hmm. combustible engines. And there was this whole, um, uh, kind of competition to see which one would win out. The women, the electric cars were considered women's cars. They were slower and quieter. And the um, the uh, steam cars kept on blowing up. So the combustible engine, yeah, there's a little problem. Um, so the, the combustible uh, engine obviously won out, but it was, um, it was a fascinating time. And when I read the, the newspapers from that period, it was kind of like what we're going through with the internet right now, I, especially the Richmond time, they would dedicate uh, six or seven or eight pages every Sunday to the latest innovations mm -hmm. of what was going on with cars and uh, you know, horsepowers and the latest speed limits that were broken. And they had this buzz phrase, speed mania. America has speed mania right now. And it was just this old hand wringing. Of, and I tried to work that in and it just, it didn't feel right, the whole speed mania thing. Okay, yeah. I'm not gonna let you go further down oh, the rabbit okay. hole okay. because with the, <laughs> with the research, it's endless. Okay, no, okay, thank you. thank you for it's stopping me. Thank okay. you, thank you. So you have, um, you, uh, performed the audio books yes. for all of the books, yeah, uh -huh. including this one. Uh -huh. So tell our audience a little bit what that's like. Well, it's harder than you would think to, re to read out a book. A couple of members of my family are astonishing readers and they read out loud gorgeously. And my older sister read the entire Oz series and didn't stumble over a single word. And uh, so you go into this booth and it's kind of like a, a DJ booth and it's got a great big glass window and a big microphone um, and a, um, 
and you got the, the manuscript there. And it takes about, they, they'll, they give about five days. Now, about half books are, uh, half of the books out there, the audio books are read by actors. Right. And I listened to a number of those in advance. Um, so, like I said, I was nervous and I was worried about spoonerisms, which I do when I get nervous. That's when you transpose the initial letter of something. Um, so you'd say something like, anyway, um, I, I won't say it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, so I, I, I really rehearsed the prologue um, and I, I sat down to read it and um, I did it pretty much without that many mistakes. And um, the producer, she said, um, well, that was good, but you know, um, the second page, the third paragraph, I'd like to hear more interior, like more intentionality. What the heck are you, intentionality? What do we like, like Meryl Streep here? Like, what are you talking intentionality? I, I said, I'm not an actor. And she said, you know, Jeanette, you did the voices. So I'm gonna treat you like an actor. And she pushed me very hard. So it's kind of like that gentleman who said, I, you know, who, who called me on saying that I, I, I don't make things up. She called me on saying I'm not an actor. But the thing about recording is see, the the uh, the mic is so sensitive it picks up like stomach noises and stuff like that it really does or or mouth clicks I'm going to gross y'all out right now like if you go like that it picks it up so um and 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 so they ha you have to keep on re-recording and re-recording that being said I, I had a blast I kind of loved it um and um you know I, 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 as the producer said I did the voices for each of the characters and um you got to give different accents to each of them and um. So I, you know, I hope I pulled it off. I spoke to somebody earlier today who loved it. So God bless y'all. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So one of my really good friends, a young reader, wanted me to ask you of all the books that you've written, which one was the toughest to write and why? Um. First of all, thank you to your your young friend. Um, Glass Castle was hard. That was really hard. I, it, it took five years. Um, and as I said, my, my husband kind of hogtied me to the desk and said, you are writing this thing. And he had to pull a lot of things out of me. And uh, he read an early version and it, it, it said, um, he said, you know, if your parents weren't buying food for you, how did you survive? I said, you know, I'm resourceful, you know? And he said, no, I don't know, Jeanette. You have to spell it out. Mm -hmm. And um, the scene where I was digging food out of garbage, I, I'd never told anybody that before. And when I was writing it, I was a mess. I was I was shaken and I was just like, I was sweating, it was, it was horrible. But a very wise man once said to me something, he said, secrets are a little bit like vampires. They suck the life out of you, but you, they can exist only in the darkness. Once they're exposed to the light, there's a moment of horror, but then poof, they lose their power over you. And I have found that to be true. So this thing that I wrote about that so haunted me it, you know, it, it now, it's just something that I went through. And here's one of the neat magical things about having told that story is that people, and stories like that in the, in the Glass Castle, is that people come up and they tell me their stories. And um, sometimes they're crying and they apologize and say, I've never told anybody this before, but I think you'll understand. And I think, why would you be ashamed of that? That's a lovely story, it's about survival. That I remember, oh yeah, you know, I. I, I dislike that too. And I, I believe, I've come to believe that, that these things that happen to us, everything in life is both a blessing and a curse. And it's entirely up to you which side you choose to focus on. And I, um, I, you know, one of the blessings having raised the way I was is that I'm a fighter and a scrapper. And one of the curses of the way I was raised is that I'm a fighter and a scrapper. And it took me a long time to realize you don't always have to fight. And only through having told my story 
did I understand that? But you know, the upside is like, one time before I'd come clean about my story, I was at this sort of snooty magazine, this really well-to-do woman, she wanted to go on vacation with me. And I thought that'd be kind of interesting. She knew nothing about my past, but I thought it'd be kind of interesting. We're talking about owning houses in Switzerland and that kind of stuff. So, oh, okay, what, what, what did you have in mind? And she said, um, she wanted to go on something called Outward Bound. Now, I had never heard of this here Outward Bound thing before. And she explains to me that you pay a rather substantial amount of money and you go into the wilderness and you forage for food. And I'm thinking, honey, first 17 years of my life were an outward bound, you know? <laughs> so I called my brother, I said, Brian, you're not gonna believe this. Rich people gotta pay for their hardships, you know? <laughs> and we both thought that was the funniest thing we'd ever heard until I got to know this woman better. And she's so smart and so resourceful, and she just doesn't know that. So that's the blessing, folks. Those of you out there who've had a childhood like mine, is that we, you know, that we know how tough we are. We sometimes have to realize how valuable we are, that we are as good as the other people. What did you think of one of your dad's um, nicknames for you, Mountain Goat? Oh, I loved it. Okay. I, I, you know, I mean, I, you know, I think that's my spirit animal. Okay. You know, I, I, I okay. you know, but I was being interviewed by some, um, uh, some overseas press, and they said, but a goat. You know, you know. I guess that's really bad. You know, I, but I, you know, I, I, I thought it was, um, I thought it was an homage to my ability to um, navigate very difficult terrain. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I, 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 yeah. I, Dad, for all of his nuttiness, could be very wise. Right. Well, and for our audience, one of the cool things that Netflix has done is as of May 1st, they've put the glass castle back in the rotation. I didn't know that. So I know for myself, I oh. rewatched it and other oh. people will want oh. to as well. Oh. So that's oh. very cool. Oh, in addition I, I, to getting see, it is, from the library or wherever. This is why I love going out. I learned so much. <laughs> okay. okay. So um, having seen it a long time ago, uh -huh. Uh -huh. you know, certain things now really jumped out at uh -huh. me. So there's the scene where you find out that your father is a secret writer that he has writing in his past. And there's the Christmas where your mom says, and giving books to all of you, and yeah. books were always yeah. in your life. Yeah. Um, I couldn't find a book for you, so I gave you a blank book. Yeah. You can write your own. Yeah. So I yeah. wanted you just to tell us a little bit about how you think this writing thing got started for you. Oh, I think that um, people in my family were always writing. I cannot remember not knowing how to read. I cannot remember that. And our house was always filled with books. Um, they were library books. Sometimes we returned them. I, I did not go into a bookstore until I was in my 20s, my early 20s. I remember walking and like, this is kind of like a library, except you pay the fine in advance, you know? <laughs> but um, it was just part of our lives, the storytelling and the write it down and look it up and research it and let's discuss this word and let's, so, you know, again, I mean, so many people have asked me like, why are you not bitter or angry about your childhood? And it's, it's kind of a choice of what you focus on. I mean, we are all storytellers. Anybody who's answered the question, you know, how was your day? What happened today? Mm -hmm. You're a storyteller and what do you choose to tell? Mm -hmm. Do you talk about the nice clerk who was so friendly when she was bagging your groceries or do you talk about the jerk who cut you off in, 
in you or know both. or both right. and and it's all accurate so how do right. we tell our stories but right. i you know the, the the anecdote i love to to uh, hold forth to illustrate that is when i was writing the glass castle i always knew that i would talk about the star getting a star for for those of you who haven't read it when i, when I was five years old we had no money for christmas presents and my father gave gave each of us a star mm -hmm. and it, it's it's beautifully portrayed in in the movie mm -hmm. and um it's my favorite gift and my favorite story ever. Um, to this day, I look up in the sky, see Venus, I think, I own that. That is mine. And I, I love that story so much. I told it at my father's funeral. After I finished telling the story, my older sister, Lori, a lot smarter than me, always saw right through my, my dad's BS. She said, isn't that like that sorry SOB dad of ours to go give away something that doesn't belong to him in the first place? <laughs> and I thought about that a whole lot while I was trying to tell the truth and write my story because Lori's absolutely right. You know, dad's giving me Venus was a completely meaningless gesture, but I'm right too. It was a priceless treasure and it is whatever you choose to make of it. And any, any journalist, memoirist, historian knows that we shape our truths by which stories we tell and how we choose to tell them. And, and so storytelling was just always a big part of my life. That being said, if any of my siblings had written this book, the memoir, it would have been entirely different story. Same fact, different right. story. Right, right. So in the introduction of you this evening, um, we learned that your husband is also a writer oh, yeah. for those folks that don't know, and you've been together, you've married two decades and plus. Yeah, uh -huh. So what's that like? Well, people say, how could you possibly be married to another writer? I don't understand if a writer could possibly be married to somebody other than a writer. <laughs> we, you know, we just all the time argue about semicolons and, you know, I mean, <laughs> and characters. And, and he, he worked very closely with me on Hang the Moon. And um, we, we just, we talked about it constantly and the characters, does this make sense? Does this make sense? And sometimes when the, um, the dialogue was flat in one of the characters, um, we'd act out the scenes. Thank you, Woody Harrelson. Um, we'd, um, he would, you know, especially with Sally, the main character. So some of the dialogue just didn't sound right. And um, he'd say, okay, I'll play the Duke, her dad. And you be, you be Sally and just, just blurt out whatever comes to mind. Don't think about it, just, mm -hmm. just say it. And, and we do a lot of the dialogue that way. Mm -hmm. And it would, it would bring about a conversation. Why did you say that? Why? And we didn't always use those exact words, but very often we did. With one, of the, one of the problems being, I worked very hard to make Sally's writing, uh, Sally's dialogue and all of the, the, the language in this, feel not necessarily dated, but not contemporary either. And originally Sally was a real potty mouth. Um, and um, her go-to word, is it okay if I say a curse word? Look at Anne. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, originally her, her go-to curse word was kind of my go-to curse word. And you say something was dumbass. And she was always talking about prohibition was a dumbass law. And there's this amazing resource, Green's Dictionary of Slang, where you can look up what, when various curse words okay. entered the lexicon and where. And dumbass is a mid-century curse word. So I had to lose it and it broke my heart. Um, <laughs> and I tried to find replacements, but they were all too coy, you know. Golly gee willikers, it just didn't feel right. So, so it, it kind of broke my heart to clean up her language like that, but it actually felt more authentic after I did that because she was sounding a little like a gun mole. And I think that that whole tough talking, you know, butt kicking thing, it, it was not early 20th century, certainly not in that part of the country. Okay, okay. So you've been at this publishing yeah. gig for quite a while. Yeah. So I wanted you to tell us a little bit of 
how you've seen it change and this whole uh -huh. phenomenon of artificial intelligence. Oh, somebody, um, somebody fed, um, hang the moon into an artificial intelligence thing and uh, came up with a poem about it. And I thought it was hilarious and um, it was very bad, <laughs> <laughs> but it was kind of cute in its badness. But um, uh, it did. It, if it stays that bad, I think we're fine. It'll probably get a lot smarter. But um, you know, publishing. I the, the Glass Cast was first published in two thousand five, and when I would go on book tour, there were all kinds of TV stations and radio stations in every city. I stopped, and and we just don't have that now. But we have. Um, we have social media and things like that. I am a real latecomer to social media. I just, I just, this is very embarrassing. There's something out there is called Facebook. It's really fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and I started going on it and I just love it. So, you know, and all these people from my high school have hooked up with me. And so I just, I, you know, so you lose something, you gain something, you know? And I, you know, anytime the technology changes, people wring their hands. This is the end of the world, da, 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 you know? But we, you know, we incorporate it and and we go on. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, having the the audiobooks is is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, back when I recorded my first audiobook, it was largely just it was a very small industry, mm -hmm. and it was mostly for for sight impaired readers. Mm -hmm. And um, now you know it's become this big industry. So yeah, there's a lot of changes. You lose something, but you gain. Um, I think that there's still an incredible appetite for reading out there. And, you know, um, I, I love it that people who aren't necessarily readers can hear my book. And I love it that it was turned into a movie. And some people say, oh, I hate, you know, it's so awful that they, you know, dumb down our books. And not long after the, the movie, The Glass Castle came out, I was approached by this, um, this woman who she said, we adopted a, we, a foster child and he will not talk he would not talk about his upbringing. We went and saw your movie. It was a game changer. Mm -hmm. He opened up about it. Mm -hmm. And that's why we tell our stories. So I don't care how it gets out there as long as it gets out there. It's kind of not about me anymore. It's just, it's about storytelling. And you know, it's contagious. Openness and honesty and vulnerability. Anger and hatred and fear are contagious, but so are love and, and sharing. And, and we do this through storytelling. Right. Another thing that several people asked me when they knew I was going to interview you is there's no way you could have known that The Glass Castle would sell over 5 million copies, 35 languages, eight years on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, I mean, yeah, all these yeah, awards, yeah. so many, yeah. a movie, yeah, everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, yeah. how does somebody that grew up the way that you did deal with that kind of success uh, yeah. and also yeah. continue to write? I mean, just managing that level of celebrity, what's that been well, like? Well, first of all, thank you, I'm not a celebrity. I'm just somebody with a weird past who talked about it. Um, <laughs> I, uh, first of all, yeah, it's funny because a couple of people have said, is that a dream come true? I would have to be insane to dream that. I mean, I'd have to be, oh, you know, but of all the, the beautiful, amazing things that have happened to the story, uh, the thing that I love the most is it's being read in high schools, and I I just I love that. Um, and you know when I was reading when I was writing it, and any writer who tells you they don't have a fantasy for their book is lying because it's excruciating. So we tell ourselves stories. When this book comes out, X, Y, and Z will happen. And I hoped that a rich kid would read it, and that that rich kid would be a little bit nicer to those of us from the wrong side of the tracks. And then as I worked on it harder, I got more ambitious and hoped that somebody who grew up like I had grown up would read it. And that that somebody would get 
a glimmer of hope from my story, the same way that I got from reading A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. The fact that so many kids have read this book, that's that's my gift, that's my award, that's, that's the only thing that kind of matters to me. Not long after the publication, I was approached by a young woman, long blonde hair, she looked like a popular young lady. She said, there's a girl in my class, she has ugly out of date clothes, and me and all the other cheerleaders make fun of her. And now after having read your story, I'm not gonna make fun of her anymore. And I said, the Lord can strike me down with lightning right now, because I've done my job on this planet. <laughs> but, but then a young man approached me at, at another event, uh, a tough area, tough area, that, under underserved. And um, he said, um, I hate books and I hate reading, but I enjoyed your story. And I said, if you hate books and, and reading, what did you like about this story? And this young man ponders that for a second. And he said, that there is a fine white trash story. So, <laughs> <laughs> and this woman near him says, I believe that was meant as a compliment. So, uh, but it's, it's, it's everything I ever hoped for. And I hope that the whole thing, like, has it gone to my head? It's just like, you know, Dad always predicted that we live in a glass castle one day. And on some level, I kind of believed him. On some level, I bought into my dad's fantasies about us and me, his mythologizing. We, we cling to these mythologies until we can't anymore. But there was, he gave me, for all that they didn't give me, for all that my parents didn't give me, they gave me a sense of hope, a, a, a love of education, mm -hmm. a love of... I'm kind of late to the game, but of creativity and um, a belief in myself. Mm -hmm. And I believe if you get that, that you can do just about anything. Now, kids, I believe, are very good at finding a light in the darkness. Mm -hmm. And and that is one of the many reasons that I love that my book is being written, read. And I think that God bless all the teachers doing that, because I think that, you know, if, if a child has at least one person in their life who believes in them, mm -hmm that they can get through so much. And ideally it's a parent, sometimes it's a relative or a neighbor, but all too often it's a teacher. And, and so these teachers who are saying, look, you can make it. This young woman made it, you can too. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I don't think I'm directly answering your question. It's, I don't think of myself certainly not as a celebrity or, or whatever. And, and, and people telling, my st telling me their stories, it's a beautiful gift that mm -hmm. they trust me that much. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I'm not one of the Kardashians. I can go out in public. I, you know, this is, I'm not mobbed. I, you know, every now and then somebody will recognize me. They're always so lovely and gracious about it. And it's so great because you, you cut right through the small talk. Having, you know, people, people, we don't have to talk about, oh, well, where did you go? People say, girlfriend, you think your family's crazy. What do you hear about mine? You know, and, and it's, it's transformed the world for me from a place filled with potential enemies to a place filled with potential friends. And I, I can just meet anybody and, and have a lovely conversation as I did out in the lobby, people yeah. just coming up and saying things to me. Right. So it's really, it's all been good. Right. So let's also talk about that the Glass Castle was on some of the yeah. uh, most challenged lists, mm -hmm. banned lists, even in our community. Yeah. There's a, a school, ninth grade, yeah. they took it out of the honors program. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, so then if we move to what's happening today. Yeah. And you told me something, um, it seems like you take an approach of whatever the behavior is, I can see the functions it serves, the way you describe prohibition. I can see the functions of what they were going yeah, for, you know, I, even I, yeah. if they didn't 
it, it didn't work out that way. So talk about the banned book. Movement. Yeah, and I feel the same way about, about the book banning. I get it. I get it. People, you know, there's a crazy world out there, and there's a lot of dangerous, scary new thoughts, and people are just trying to control. They're trying to protect their children. I understand that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we all want the same thing. We all want what's best for the children. We just disagree how to get there. Um, I'm going to tell you a real quick story, as I'm inclined to do. Um, <laughs> sometimes not so quick. But... Um, the Glass Castle got banned, I think the first time in two, that I knew of anyway, in 214, um, in a very well-to-do suburb um, in, I'll tell you what the heck, I'll, in Dallas. And um, one teacher, or one parent rather, had objected to a scene, the scene where my uncle behaved inappropriately towards me. And so the other parents and the teachers and God bless them, the students got together. They say, we are among the most, the most well-to-do area in all of America. We need to know that families like this exist. So they got together and they got the book unbanned. And they not only unbanned it, they, they invited me to come down and talk to them. And I spoke to a fellow uh, writer who said, you're going to hate those kids. I spoke to them one time. They were a bunch of spoiled brats. We had the best time. Oh, my gosh. We just had this ranging conversation about poverty and you know, wealth and what parents owe children, what children owe parents. And it was, it was a beautiful, beautiful experience. But then afterwards, after most of the kids had left, one student hung back and thanked me. She said, I want to thank you because there's a passage there where one of your uh, relatives behaved inappropriately. And it gave me the courage to go to my parents and tell about a, a relative who'd behaved inappropriately. And, you know, that is why, you know, we, first of all, we poor, we poor folk, Poor folk have not cornered the market on dysfunctional families. Everybody needs to figure out. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody has their story. Everybody has these issues and these complications. And what better way, what is the better way to protect our children? What is the better way to make our children strong and able to survive? Is it to wrap them in a bubble and tell them, that, oh, you can't read this scary bad stuff that's out there? Or do you expose them to, to these situations in the comfort and sanctity of a classroom where they can discuss and debate these things and they can disagree? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. They can disagree. That's part of America. I've sat in on book, you know, clubs where people say, I think your mother was a disaster and I would not have let my children play with people like you. That's fine. That doesn't bother me. I get it. That's that's fine. That is why we tell our stories is to have these conversations and, and we strengthen our children by by exposing them and letting them understand how to deal with these difficult situations. And and that's that is my feeling. But thank you so much for your lovely reaction. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So I told you that I want to, I'm not going to do 20 lightning round questions, but I did want to kind of jump around and ask you uh -huh. some things. So the first one is, did you want to write the script for the movie? Oh, no. Okay. No, I'm, I, that's not my, that's my, not my medium. And I wouldn't have known what to cut out and that I know. No. Okay. Um, and, it, you know, uh, Hang the Moon has been optioned as well. And, and I'm not, you know, a lovely, lovely woman is working on it. And I said, I'm here for your questions. Okay. You do your thing. I'm not a, I'm not a script writer. No. Okay. okay. And then another question is your mother was a prolific painter. Oh yeah. And both of your parents are deceased and buried mm -hmm, on your mm -hmm, property, mm -hmm. which is quite beautiful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what happened to all the paintings? Um, we'll be having a sale afterwards. <laughs> Discounted. <laughs> 
I have a great big I have a great big um, shed full of her paintings, okay. and I I don't quite know what to do with them, but uh, they're there. They're there. Okay. Okay. Um, and everybody wants an update on your siblings because oh, yeah, that yeah. also oh, yeah. really yeah. comes through in the movie. Yeah. This yeah. pack that the four of you made, mm -hmm. and when you made the decision, we're going to school, yeah. and all the different things that you did to support each other. So yeah. talk yeah. about that yeah. a little bit. Um, my older sister, Lori, had lived in Manhattan for, for more than 30 years. She now lives in Colorado, still an artist. My 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 kid sister, Maureen, she's schizophrenic. Okay. And... Um, you know, I've thought so often, could I have saved her? Could I have rescued her? I, you know, there's lovely upper middle class families with schizophrenic children. She's living in a clean, safe place I talk with on a regular basis. Um, you know, if she ever decides she doesn't want to live in that city, she can she can have mom's old cottage. But, you know, she 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 was the most creative of any of us. And mm -hmm. it just, you know, it just, anybody who has a lot of mental illness in their family knows how, how heartbreaking it is. My brother Brian is the best guy in the world. He's just the best guy. And I talked to him on a really regular basis. And um, he had been a cop. He retired, became a teacher. He worked for Habitat for Humanity for a while. He's just the best. Yeah. 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 Everybody's really happy about that. Thank you. Yeah. So um, you live in Virginia yeah. uh -huh. and you spent a lot of time in New York uh -huh. City. Yeah. So I'm wondering about the call of place and home and oh, yeah. why you live where oh, yeah. you live yeah. and yeah. in the books the geography yeah. becomes its own character yeah i love virginia you know? i you know yeah okay. I, you know okay. i think a lot of us have an internal landscape i was born in the desert but right. but there's something about the green hills that i just i so love and i love new york city i just i loved it it never overwhelmed me i you know I, i've always loved the energy and the the craziness and i was you know, I got the first year I was there. I got mugged five times, and it didn't. I I got beat up wherever I lived. That was nothing new. I just fought back. Mm -hmm. But I just I love New York, and it, like I said, it was my husband who insisted that I that I that we move down to Virginia, and I I love it more than I could could have imagined. And now when I go back to New York City, I still love it, but I feel like it's an old boyfriend with whom I amicably split, mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. will always love it. Will always be a place in my heart. Glad I moved on, you know. So, so um, I, I, you know, I, I, I am. I think the luckiest human being in the world. I really do. Uh, how how much have you wanted to research your family history in West Virginia? My, it's it's not there. Okay. My father's history is just not there. He also he, he didn't like that kind of stuff. He was okay. like, like a bunch of bullshit. But okay. um, but okay. it's just it's not. There's not any history of it. My my mother's side of that family, they were all these incredible historians. But I I might be able to get to something out. But I don't think there's a lot to be got. Okay. And what about what you like to do for fun? Oh, um, I, <laughs> I play the piano very badly. <laughs> I have chickens. I have, you know, I, I have, um, uh, I mean, honestly though, I mean, one of the many things I love doing is I do love talking to, to readers. I think, mm -hmm. you know, I used to think, I used to think that the way to feel good about yourself was to feel superior to other people. I did. Mm -hmm. I thought that, you know, when I, especially was living in New York city, I thought that, you know, that's, you know, you put on your fancy designer clothes and you drop names and stuff like that. And that's how you feel good about yourself. And um, I, I'd been living in New York City for a little while and um, I thought I'd go back to this little town in Southern West Virginia where I grew up mm -hmm. to show those hicks are a thing or two about how sophisticated and elegant I'd become, as y'all can tell from my sophisticated, elegant accent. So um, I, 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 I put on my best designer clothes and I go into this little coffee shop that I'd always, You've been too intimidated to eat at because it struck me as kind of fancy dancy. 
Um, and I, I took a seat at the most prominent booth. And the waitress comes over. <clears throat> she um, she hands me a menu and um, I open it up and it was a Friday and it's a special today fish. Now I, I knew from having lived in New York City, eaten at fancy dancy restaurants, you know, the waiter comes over and describes the, the special today is a lovely Chilean sea bass with blah, 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 whatever. So, um, so she, the waitress, waitress says, you know, can I help you? And I said, yes, what is the fish? And I was being a jerk. <laughs> I was being a jerk. I knew darn good and well what the fish was. It was a little square piece of fish with breadcrumbs. It was fish, it was fish sticks, which happens to be my favorite fish anyway. But, but I was trying to humiliate the waitress into saying, you know, this is a fancy restaurant. This isn't a fancy restaurant like you're obviously used to eating at. This is just a little coffee shop so that I could feel superior to her, right? So I said, uh, yes, uh, what is the fish? She said, excuse me? I said, the menu says special today fish. What is the fish? And she looks at me to see if she just heard what I'd asked her. And then she looks around to see if anybody else had heard what I just asked her. And then she says, kind of slow and careful so I can understand it. The fish is an animal which swims in the water. <laughs> so, so, so there I am trying to show her how sophisticated I am. And she's thinking, make them pretty dumb where you come from. Huh? You know? <laughs> so I ordered the fried chicken, didn't ask what that was. <laughs> So, but I was being an idiot because if I wanted to have a, you know, if I, if I wanted to feel good about myself, I should introduce myself and I might, I might have made a friend, mm. but I just, I just wanted to feel good. So I live in this little small town where, you know, I go into the local food line and the manager knows me and, you know, she always says hello. And when my husband went in there the other day without me, she says, where's your wife? You know, oh, she's out of town. Anyway, anyway, you know, she's just got your back. She's got right. your back. And, right. and I just, I love, I love my life now. You know, right. it's just, it's beautiful. I, you know, I interviewed every celebrity you can possibly imagine. And yeah, tell, it tell them certain... what your work in New York was about, because oh. you learned a lot about human beings. Yeah, I did. Well, I, I originally started, I, I thought I wanted to write about, well, I did want to write about um, poverty and, and homelessness and stuff like that. Whenever I wrote one, my editor would say, this is really boring and would give it back to me. Okay. And um, they put me on what was called the gossip column, but it wasn't really gossip about celebrities. It was much more little news bits. It was about movers and shakers and, and, and people like Donald Trump, who I actually interviewed a lot because he was such a big deal developer, but it was just little news items, conflicts of interest. And it was a very high pressure job because you're always threatening to get sued. And you know, you're, you're writing, you're writing snarky things about people who can destroy you. And so you have to have a weird personality and people would only do it for half a year or something like that. I did it for seven years. I just loved it. I'm a yard dog. You know, I just like, I was just like, and I just loved going after the bullies, you know, and, and they threatened to sue me and, blah, 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 blah. you know, uh, I'm from West Virginia. That all you got? You know, come on, you know, I can take you on. Um, but then I, 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 I left there and I went to I went to Esquire for a couple of years. Um, that doing gossip column at a, you know at a month it was was tough. Then I went to to MSNBC and I was on air and online. And I tried to do my little mover shaker items and they got twenty thousand hits. And then I did a Britney Spears item and it got two million hits. It was the first one that MSNBC the first time that MSNBC had a, an item that broke the 1 million mark. So the die was cast and I was writing about celebrities. And it was, it was kind of, that was, that was what was kind of weird for me because, um, you know, first of all, I was never that interested in celebrities. I grew up without a television, you know, um, but 
um, it was it was just the kind of like the shallowness. And I'd be on the red carpet and I'd ask somebody something, and if they gave me a nice, long, complicated answer, I can't use that. You know, I just you just need this this short little thing. But it was you know it was interesting. I actually grew to. I think fame is really overrated. I, mm. I kind of ended up feeling sorry for a lot of the people. I think it's such a tough life. Mm. I think that a, a lot of these celebrities are incredibly insecure. And I think the best actors are actually introverts. And they really hate being on the red carpet. They find it very painful. So, you know, it was it was interesting, but I I grew so sick of it by the time I was writing The Glass Castle. I was just looking for a way out. I was like, like I said, I don't have any other talent. I looked into dog walking. I, I what what can I do? I don't, you know, so um so when my husband, he, he, you know, he just felt like you, you really should tell your story, and uh, it, it was it was in a bit of an escape hatch, but it was also because, you know, um, I just I didn't the irony. Some people would say hypocrisy of pursuing other people's stories while I was mm -hmm. hiding my own did not escape me. Right. Um, also, it was funny because I, I'd written a couple of items on Scientology, and they were investigating me. And I was so like, oh yeah, come get me. And I was like, oh yeah, actually I do have some secrets. So, you know, huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna report them, they can they can investigate me. It's that's fair. Um, so it was it was just it was an interesting time. I, you know, um I I love the work about going after the movies and shakers, but um the celebrity stuff, yeah, not so much. I mean, you know, like I said, I interviewed pretty much every one of them. But just very short. I was, I was, right. it was mostly the red carpet stuff that I did the interviews on. Right. Yeah. Right. So what's next? Uh, I have no idea. I um, I I'm not a multitasker, and I, I, I swore I'd never do this again. I'm like, this is horrible. I hate this. I'm because the thing about writing a book, if there's authors or would be authors out there, I know that there's at least a couple of authors. Hi, Doug. Um, <laughs> um, that you better love what you're writing about because it's the first thing you think about every morning and the last thing you think about every night. And because I obsessed so much about the research, and I just like I'm not going to do this again. I just it's just it's it's excruciating. But a friend of mine who's also a writer has a bunch of children. She said it's a little like giving birth. The end result is so gratifying you forget how excruciating the process <laughs> is. So you know, um, so I you know I said I'm, I'm not going to do this again. I hate it. I you know. And then just the other day I found myself taking notes. So mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't I don't know what's next. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Well, it looks like we're gonna. Uh, Converse more with the audience. Good. Our Q and A. Time. Ask anything. So, um, here come the house lights. Oh wow! Look at everybody. Don't they look great? Yeah. So, if someone in the balcony has a question, the balcony is all too often forgotten, or kind of. Is there somebody? In the a brave woman. Okay. Hey, Jeanette. Hi. It's Ari, thank you so much for being amazing at school today. It was inspiring to see you. Oh, I loved your students, yeah. Um, I have a question for you about your road to publishing. What was it like in your pitch to getting The Glass Castle published? Huh, what an interesting question. Um, I'm, my, um, my, my husband told, we share an agent. He, and he said, you know, Jeanette has a really interesting story. And my agent said, yeah, her and everybody else in the world, you know. So go ahead and write up a couple of chapters. Um, so I did. Um, and she just, she shopped them around. I mean, I, I, had, I had an advantage in that I had an agent. And I was already in the media world. So I, I didn't have to jump through all those hurdles. Um, like I said, I, I did, I thought it would... Um, 
I thought it would be the end of my my journalism career, which I, I guess it kind of was. But um, and I also I I was continuing to write it while I was at MSNBC, so that that was a little peculiar. But um, it's a very different publishing world right now, and there's you know, and a lot of people are self-publishing and it doesn't have the stigma that it used to so there's just all sorts of ways to get your story out now thank you yeah. i did see some hands in the balcony um hi, Je hi jeanette question what did your siblings think of the glass castle okay. i'm dying to know what they said where am i looking yeah oh, okay there we go. okay thank you <laughs> um um I offered to everybody in my family to, to let them read it in advance of publication. My older sister had no interest in it, neither did my younger sister. My older sister said, you know, write what you got to write. I don't want any part of it. You know, she was supportive. Um, I'd call her up with questions every now and then, but she's just sort of like, Argh. she finds the past very painful. Maureen, God bless her, she's just fighting aliens somewhere. But um, my mother had no interest in reading it. She said, why would I read it? I, you know, I know what happened. You know, <laughs> she only read it once it became a bestseller. Brian, my brother was fabulous from day one and they've all been great about it. And that's one of the challenges of writing your stories. You not only have to make the decision to expose yourself, but to expose the people you love. And that, that's one of the difficult things about writing a memoir. And I think that it's the impediment that stops a lot of people that, you know, they, they just don't want to do this to their family. My family was mostly fabulous. Anybody out there grappling with possibly telling your story, there's a couple of ways around there. And one is offer to show the, story, the, the manuscript to anybody who wants to see it. They might actually enhance it. They might say, huh, that's not what I remember. I remember this. Oh, yeah, you know, it might become a collaborative effort. Um, um, if they don't want you to write it, you can always change their name or you can fictionalize it. Mm -hmm. um, but legally speaking, um, the, the law has come down on the side of memoirs, that memoirs do have the right to tell their story, unless you're accusing somebody in this, the book of having done a, a major crime. But um, I, you know, in my opinion, as long as you're being compassionate and sympathetic to what people are trying to do, they, they tend to be supportive. They might have a different perspective. You can put at the end of the book that they, you know, especially if it becomes a bestseller and becomes a movie, you know, then they're really into it. Especially when 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 the Glass Castle got turned into a movie, Mom was a little upset. She called up my sister Lori. She goes, "Who is this Naomi Watts woman anyway?" <laughs> and Lori said, "She's very beautiful and very talented." Suddenly, Mom's on board, you know. <laughs> so you know, I think as long as you're you're as long as you're trying to just tell the truth, that in my experience, the family members are supportive. Different people have had different experiences, but I know a lot of memoirs, and most right. of them, the family right. kind of comes right. around. Question from our virtual audience. All right, this is from our virtual viewer, Audrey DeVault. She asks, as one of seven children, I am number two, I am wondering how your birth order affected your relationship with your parents. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. such an interesting question, you know, the whole birth order issue. I was, I was the second, I'm, I'm, which is a peacemaker. I'm the second of four. Um, you know, and I, I think that that is also why I love to see s stories from all sides is because I have the older and the younger. Um, but I think that as with all siblings, you know, you, you just see the story very differently. And anybody, you know, who has siblings knows that you all sit down 
12 of you sit down <laughs> to talk about the story and you have 12 different stories. Um, but it's not just the birth order. There's so many different things that go into um, how you see a story and, and how it all affects you. Um, you know, whereas I see the, the gift of the, the Venus has this beautiful story and my older sister sees it as painful. My brother does a hilarious impersonation of my dad being drunk and giving away stars and planets. And, you know, so to one, it's a, it's a, it's a triumph, to another, it's a tragedy, and to the third, it's a comedy, you know? Thank you. Is that? Good evening. Hi. The Glass Castle has one of the best opening lines I've oh. read in any memoir, any book of fiction ever, and I can't quote it to you. Maybe you can quote it to me, but you're sitting in a taxi wondering if you're overdressed for an event. You look out the window and you see your mother rooting through a dumpster. Mm -hmm. I, did you start there? Yes. Did you, you did? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. First of all, thank you so much for the kind comments, but yes, I always knew that that would be the opening scene and pretty much the opening sentence. I mean, I, I toyed with the open the sentence a little bit with it, you know, which clause goes where. I always knew that would be the opening scene. That's the prologue. I did not know what would be the opening of the childhood of the, you know, so you you have the, the contemporary thing, and then you go to the childhood. And I was asking my husband, who's just been so valuable, I'm like, what do I open with? He said, open with a burn, Jeanette. I'm like, yeah, that, that wasn't such a big deal, you know? Uh, you know. So I got burned, I got a scar, I can't wear a bikini, I wouldn't wear a bikini anyway, what's the big deal? It's a, he said, it was a big deal, trust me. He said, that scene is going to depend on detail. Put in all the detail you remember. So, oh, okay, so I go type it up, blah, 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 blah. I show it to him, he said, you can take some of this detail out, Jeanette. You know? <laughs> but so, so I wrote the scene, blah, 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 and then I read it back, and I was shocked. I was shocked, I was shocked by the burn scene, I was shocked by the amount of fire in my life. And I, you know, again, another reason that I encourage people to tell your stories is I think, I think that we all know things that we don't realize that we know. But yeah, I always knew I would open that because that was, if there was a moment that I decided I've got to tell my story, it was that moment. It was, that was, that was the kick in the behind that I needed to say, I cannot continue this bifurcated life. It's just too weird. Me going to this friggin' celebrity party with designer clothes and there's mom, you know? And, and so, yeah, th that was, that was my, I'm going to tell you a story and this is why. Let's go back up to the balcony. Hi, this is a tricky way to get more stories out of you. I have a personal interest in the cultural difference for kids that grew up in poverty and kids that grew up with more privilege. And I'm curious, you touched on it in your book, but do you have more as you get older that you realize are differences between you and maybe some of your peers just because of the cultural difference? Gosh. Um, do I have more perspective on the cultural differences. I mean, uh, gosh, you and I could like have a, a long lunch about this. Um, I think it is just so pervasive. I think it just really informs who we are and how we see ourselves. And to me, the worst thing about poverty was not the hunger or the cold or not eating. To me, it was the shame. It was feeling that you weren't as good as the other kids. And I think that that is something that 
I would really love to work, that I, I continue to hope to work with children about. It, it's, it's that sense of self-esteem and that, that why so many kids, underserved kids, kids from the wrong side of the block, they just have a chip on their shoulder and they don't, they don't get it how, how valuable they are. You know, that being said, I think that kids with excess privilege suffer, I'm not gonna say equally, but they suffer in a very different way and that they think that things are handed to them. They're, they're not taught how to survive. So I think that the, the, that the circumstances that you're raised in, yeah, it completely shapes who and what you are. And that's why I think that storytelling is so important. Because I think that beyond, behind the facades, behind the way that we dress, we all have the same desires. We all are so much more alike than we realize. Our ways of negotiating and, and arguing and presenting ourselves are extremely different, but we all want to be loved and respected and feel valued. And I think it's so important that we, that we connect on those levels to understand, look, we're all in this together, especially lately. I think that extremes on both sides have really deepened the division. When most Americans are really good people and we want the same thing, let's stop focusing on the differences. And very often those differences are socioeconomic. And let's like, you know, let's, let's all work together to make this better and not do this whole them-ism thing with their types and this. And yeah, honor your past, honor who you are, honor your heritage, but we're all so much alike. And I believe the way to bridge that gap is through storytelling. I really do believe that it's that, the willingness to, to expose yourself and make yourself vulnerable. I, I, I didn't answer your question as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for being here. Um, I owe you a personal debt of gratitude, and that leads to my question. I think, and I'd like you to comment on, whether you understand that you let a whole lot of people tell their secrets because now they're legitimate, because you wrote the book that you wrote. So the question is, do you see that? Do you understand that how important well, that is all, in the culture? First of all, thank you. First of all, thank you. I mean. That just, it means the world to me, it really does. Um, and the reason I understand it is so many people have come up and thanked me. And people say, this must get so old, and it never gets old. I will never not be, I will never not get goose flesh when I hear that. So thank you, I mean, it's just, and it, it, it shocks me how many people there are like me with stories, and the stories can be different, the details are different. Sometimes people apologize, well, mine wasn't as bad as yours, but, but, but then they tell me their stories, and, and that's, again, it's one of the beauties of, of, of having been through this and coming clean and, and talking about what happened to me is that there are, there, and it's a lesson I keep on having to learn. I was at an event the other day, and this woman, it was in, in, in Texas, and this woman's all Neiman marcus out and looking so fashionable. And she comes to me, she says, you know, my daddy was a truck driver and my mom was a cocktail waitress. And one day my daddy walked out for cigarettes and never came back, you know? And it's like, damn it, you know, I just gotta stop jumping to these conclusions. And that, that this woman felt safe enough to tell me that is just, that's, that's such a blessing and, and thank you. It is such an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, so my friends and I read your book and we're in eighth grade and I was wondering if you have like a favorite age of kids to read your book. Oh my gosh. First of all, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Um, no, the, the glass castle. Um, is there a favorite age to talk at? I'm very comfortable with 13 year olds reading it. That to me is kind of like the sweet spot. Um, precocious 11 year olds. <laughs> a seven year old came to me, uh, or rather her, her aunt originally came to me and a seven year old had picked it up her aunt's um, bookcase. And this, this young woman, her mother was in jail. Her father had been shot. And um, she started reading the book. She said, Andy, these people live like we did. And um, this woman asked me to speak to her niece. And I apologize for all the dirty language. I never meant to offend any young people. And I apologize to this young woman. I'm sorry there's so many curse words in it. She goes, oh, I just let those go through my head. She said, the words I like, I let them stay inside me. The ones I don't, I just let them go right through. Why don't people understand that? <laughs> Why does a seven-year-old get that? That, you know, that, but I also spoke to a group of third and fourth graders who read it, which I would never recommend that young, but they got it. It was fascinating. They didn't get everything, but it was so interesting talking to these young people because their questions were so different from older people. No judgment. They were just very direct, like, were you cold? What did it feel like to be hungry? But the thing that fascinated them and, and had the most fixated I was like, did you get sick when you, did you get sick when you ate the garbage? That was the thing that they like, that they were just completely fascinated by because their parents are all the time, don't eat that, it was on the floor. Don't eat that, it came out of the garbage, you'll get sick. <gasps> and they met somebody who ate garbage. <laughs> and they couldn't get over that. So, you know, so uh, I think the age that you read it is sort of perfect. And I've sat in on a lot of eighth grade classes where people have read it. And some people are horrified. Some people think that my parents were terrible. Some people think that my parents, some people envy me my parents. And it, you, you might think it would be weird for me to be sitting in on a conversation like that, but I have yet to be offended by a comment from somebody. They, you know, it's, it's just their perspective. And, you know, that was probably my toughest year growing up, 13. And, and uh, you know, books were, pretty much the only friend that I had. So I thank you, and I also thank your teacher, wherever he or she is, because it, 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 of all the amazing things that's happened to, to this book and to my story, it being read in schools is the one that just blows me away. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Um, first, I want to say uh, I'm a writer who spent a lot, I have an MFA, and I've spent a lot of time in prestigious writing spaces for decades. And this is the most profound conversation about the importance oh. of storytelling in society that I have ever heard. I love you so much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And only very recently have I realized that I'm also a writer approaching 50 who hasn't published a book, whatever. But I like, I think, the reason I do this is because my entire worldview involves the fact that I look at every human in the world and I think there's a story there that explains why they move through the world the way they do. And as no matter how ugly they are behaving in this moment, somebody hurt them in some really profound way and everything that hurt them, everybody who listened to them, everybody who loved them and didn't love them, that's why they're behaving the way they behave. And you are the only writer I've ever seen on a stage of this magnitude express sentiment 
and a deep understanding of sociology and how storytelling creates the world that we live in that has that impact. And I want to thank you for that. I just decided, I've just decided you are my favorite age. <laughs> Perimenopause, it has power. Well, I also want to say, um, you know, I'm a writer currently working on an autobiographical novel, which is a very different space. And I have said multiple times, even to agents, that your first book and um, Nick Hornby's metaphor or um, memoir, the title of which I will not repeat right now because my lovely friends at Cordy are watching, and um, and uh, uh, Fun Home by Alison Bechdel. That's my story. So that if you know those three books, you understand a little bit about how I grew up in the novel I'm trying to write. But I've chosen to write a novel because I went through a rigorous and well-respected MFA program where I was told, shape it. You can't tell everything. You can't, you can't say everything. Your life story is not a book. And I'm curious because you had this beautiful, best-selling memoir that really has had this incredible sociological impact on how we tell stories in our culture. It really has. It's one of the most impactful books of the last few decades. It really is. And, you know, and it, it really points to this big thing that we don't talk about in America in this moment is that it's rural versus urban. It's the poor versus the rich. It's the people who make the money versus the people who do the work. All of those things, that's where we are in this moment of American history. And I'm just really, really curious, A, why memoir first? I mean, I know you were a journalist, but why, how did you even have the nerve to say, no, this is my story, instead of cloaking it within seven layers of fiction in order to say this? But also, what did you have to leave out in order to pull that off? Would it have to be what? What did you have to leave out in order to pull off a mem you know, a memoir like that? I mean, there's many memoirs in this country who are quite famous, who we know left entire marriages out of their memoirs. Yeah. So I'm just curious, what did you leave out? Yeah. Thank you. Very well, first much. of all, I just I'm blown away. Thank you. I mean, this what I, this this experience will stay in my heart forever. So thank you. Um, uh, why why a memoir first? Because it just loomed so large. It was all I could think about. It was all. I mean, it was just. My husband said you spend a lot of time and energy pushing this back and not thinking about it. He said, I think it will be very freeing for you. If, if you tell it, I think that um, I think I spent a lot of time running from my demons. And when I was a little girl, my dad, he, he, he gave me a little, you know, we, we went demon hunting because I thought I heard a demon under my bed. So we went and tried to get him. And what dad was trying to say was to face my fears and go after those demons. And it took me a long time to understand that I've been spending all that time and energy running from this demon that was myself. It was my past. And I think that dad was really right. If you face those demons, they not only can't hurt you, you put a harness on your demon and you put it to work for you. And I, this thing that I hated about myself was the best thing that I had going for me. So far as fictionalizing, I couldn't figure out what am I supposed to make up? Am I supposed to make it weirder or less weird? It was like, <laughs> yeah. was dad an alien? I just didn't know like what, what, how, how do I fictionalize this? What, you know, what, 
that there, he, he builds the glass castle or, you know, what am I supposed to do with this? So I just, and I was a rep reporter and I was a truth teller. So um, I, I, just, I just told the story as best I could. What I left out, it was not because I was embarrassed or ashamed. It was because I was just trying to find the story. Originally, I thought it would include a lot more about my New York City years. It was really a story about family. If I left something out, it was because it was redundant. Um, I, it took me a long time to understand that you can use the tools of fiction in nonfiction. And, and you don't have to include everything. You don't have to include the end of the story. But I didn't leave things out because they were embarrassing or upsetting or weird. But you only have to include one or, or two drunken daddy scenes. My mother, you know, originally I kind of left out the, the um, that my mom had been hoarding the candy. My brother read an early version. She said, you really got to include that. You got to include at least one instance of that because mom did it a number of times. Um, so, you know, I could have left that out and nobody would have said, hey, there's a plot hole. But I felt that I had to include it to accurately describe my mother, but also to accurately describe my reaction to her. So it was really just an, an issue of just trying to be honest and tell what really happened. And, you know, and, and we make these choices about how much bad, how much good to include. And I just, I was trying to be balanced. I wasn't trying to vilify anybody, but I wasn't trying to wash, whitewash anybody either. I just wanted to explain these wonderful and horrible people who are good and bad. And the amazing thing to me has been how smart readers are about it, how they get it, sometimes better than I do. I was one, at one time at an event and somebody said, why did your, why did your mother not sell that land? Y'all could have had a normal life and, you know, kind of live like most people. I said, I don't know. I don't know. I can't get a straight answer from my mom. My husband, who's a talented interviewer, can't get an answer for, from her. So I can't answer your question. This woman in the audience raises her hand. She said, I know. I said, how do you know? She said, my book club discussed it. So, <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get a couple more questions. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead, Noah. All right. This is from Cora Fry on our live stream. Of the books you have written, which has been your favorite, favorite to write and why? Uh, when, when you're writing them, they're, they're all like your children. I mean, that's like asking which of your children do you love. Um, you know, The Glass Castle, of course, will always have a big place in my heart. Um, and But since I just finished up paying the moon, I, that, that one is the one that is kind of most current in my mind, the, the struggles and the and in and, and creating Sally and, and trying to do the same thing with Sally that you do in, and, and this is something that took me a long time to understand that you use in the same way that when you're writing nonfiction, you can use the tools of fiction, but when you're writing fiction, you use the tools of nonfiction and you try to make the characters alive and you describe the history and, the, and try to make them sympathetic, both good and bad. So just having come away from you know, when people ask me what my favorite book that I'm reading is, it's always the one I'm reading at the moment. I've got a short attention span. So, you know, but but it's it probably what, right now. What is that, by the way, that you're reading right now? Um, well, it's it's an unpublished book, what I'm, I'm reading. It's going to be, I'm okay. blurbing it, so. Okay. okay, great. We're not going to leave anybody at the mic. So I was told only one more question. But if we're quick, we'll get both of you. Um, when you write down trauma and somebody tells you that you're not valid or that they just don't understand, what do you do? How do you, how do you take that and put it aside and make yourself whole again? 
I'm sorry, I'm not quite getting that. Yeah. When, 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 when I write about trauma. Yeah, and somebody says that they just don't understand it or that that's not a valid struggle. How, how do you deal with that? Oh, you mean that people are accusing me of making stuff up or, or that- Or that they just, they can't understand and that they, they don't know how to understand what you went through or that they just, they themselves, like how do you deal with somebody who just can't get it? You know, I mean, that's kind of their issue and not mine. Um, I mean, <laughs> if, <laughs> no, I mean, and you know, I've had people say, I just can't believe that that happened or, or that you could have survived that. Or, I mean, that's one of the reasons I love sitting in on classrooms and book discussions. It's because some people don't get it or don't understand or think that that's too much or not enough or, or whatever. And, you know, maybe they haven't lived enough. Maybe they have their own issues. You know, I, um, I, cannot, con I cannot tell people how to think. I can just tell them the story and then they react however they choose to. How they react is not up to me. Great, great. And the last question. Hi, I just want to say thank you for being here tonight. Thank um, you. I first read The Glass Castle when I was in seventh grade, and it stuck with me ever since. Um, and my funny connection to it is that whenever I bake and cream together butter and sugar, I always take a little taste of the butter and sugar and think of you <laughs> in that book. Um, but um, I wanted to ask, I, so I'm a designer by trade, and I've never been a writer, can't think in words. So my thinking is very visual. And I was just curious, as a writer, what is your process on... Um, kind of getting every the timeline right, all the detail in, and like my favorite thing about the glass castle was how visual the whole thing was throughout. Um, you know, I could remember, some people have challenged me, how could you possibly remember all those things? I could remember them, but you've kind of hit on something. The timeline was tricky. I know that this happened, did it happen in Battle Mountain or in Blythe? So I, uh, you know, I, I kind of pulled at the strings and I, I, I have a good memory for, for, for visual things and remembering I can remember clothes that my eighth grade teacher wore. I can remember these scenes. I can't, I, I have no sense of direction. I, you know, we all have different memories, but I would um, just kind of map it out. Well, this must've happened there. This must've happened before this. Like I said, I, I'd call my brother and, and discuss it with him. But the, the whole remembering process, it's kind of like pulling at, at a thread and you kind of you kind of get at it eventually. And if I couldn't remember something to my satisfaction, I left it out, addressing your question earlier about why would you leave something out? It was just like, huh, this, this kind of isn't adding up. There's something I don't know or whatever. But the, the, the process of, you know, these stories haunted me so much that I had no trouble recalling them. Putting them in order was the challenge. Um, some people have, have challenged the, the notion that I could possibly remember things from when I was three years old. When I was burned, um, and I, one of the great things about having written this book is that I've talked to um, memory experts and they say, oh, no, no, um, traumatic memories are stored in a certain part of the brain where they're more easily recalled for um, evolutionary reasons. So, um, you know, and then what happened immediately after that? But my brother, who's 18 months younger than me, can also remember me being burned. And I, and I can remember scenes and things like that. So, so, yeah, I think it's very important in fiction and nonfiction to include those those tactile details. When you say you know that you're you're just a, a designer, you just see things. We're all storytellers, and you just tell your stories visually. But um, I think that the best writing brings in that kind of the colors and the textures, and and puts people in the atmosphere to to bring something to life. 
you know, um, we're all just communicating in the way that we do best. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Thank you.